this day in 1968, a very famous album won Album of the Year. Best cover, best engineered and recorded album at that year's Grammy Awards. In fact, is arguably the most famous record of all time. Anyone know what it is? What's, what's this song from? Oh, it's the Beatles, isn't it? Yeah, and if it's one of, the, one of the legendary ones, it must be Sergeant. I was going to say Dr. Peppers, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the promo. Dr. Peppers. Sergeant Peppers, isn't it? Catherine? I was thinking it was earlier than that, like the Revolver or Rubber Soul, but it's got to be Dr. Peppers. Sergeant Peppers, doesn't it? Okay, well, well, 2101, is this from Revolver or Sergeant Peppers? Uh, so anyway, it is one of the great uh, albums of all time And on this day in 1968 It won Album of the Year What was it, Revolver or Sgt Peppers? It's 6.37 here um, Good evening to you, the panel RNZ National Coming to I've Been Thinking This is the place we do it uh, on the, the evening time slot Catherine Robertson, what's your IBT today? Well, I was thinking about the pleasure that you can have in connecting people with each other. And I have a friend, hello, Judy, if you're listening, um, <laughs> and her honestly, her superpower is putting people together if she thinks that they can help each other. You know, either they could just be friends or they could collaborate on a project together or, you know, help each other out in some other way. And it's always, there's nothing in it for her. She just has this amazing ability to put people together. And I thought, actually, I love to do that as well recommend a friend, you know, I recommended an editor friend to an author friend. Um, and I think, you know, studies show that doing things for other people without expecting anything in return um, has great benefits for your personal happiness and general well-being. And volunteering is something that most people think about. But just making little connections like that, I think the benefits are undersung, if that's a word. Love it. Um, and yeah, yeah, I agree. It's wonderful. I've been thinking. I've got a friend, Scott, uh, and I, I, I consider it a bit of a super skill of his. But when you're at a function or a party, he's the sort of person who's very, very good at introducing people together. See who will go. Yes, this is Graham. Now Graham has been involved in such and such for the last twenty years, and the, and this is um this this is Sarah. Now Sarah is uh, has been in the nursing fraternity, and she's done this. And you go, wow, you, he's, he's got a little CV, and and so those two people um connect and talk. Yeah. Do you know I love those people exactly. because I'm good with faces, but I'm really hopeless with names. And so those types of people are awesome because they make sure you get the right people. But it's very that smooth. Is, that is a superpower. And I wonder, have we lost a little bit of that over the last few years post, I don't want to say post-COVID, but have we become less connected, do you reckon? Catherine? I think, I think it's something that we don't think about. Um, and, if, you know, and especially if we're a bit stressed or we're worried or life is you know, preoccupying us, we, we tend not to look outside, outside ourselves. So, but so I think you know you've got to be mindful and aware when these opportunities arise, and just go, oh yes, I could put that person in touch with this person. That would be great. Just I love do it. it. I love that, Catherine Kiara. Thank you, Scott Campbell. I've been thinking. Um, just given that it's the leap day, uh, and and I had to bring up something about that. I've been thinking. You know, if you were born four years ago on this day, are you officially one or are you four? And then does that mean <laughs> if you are eighty-four that today you turn twenty-one? Um, hopefully the mass is right there. But and if so, then do we have many twenty-one-year-old 
84 year old. 84 year old. Wow, man, you're blowing my mind here. So a bit random, but you know what I mean. No, leap, leap, leap year stories like this really, you're going to get me thinking on the bus home. There you go. So I've what, been thinking and you've been thinking. What's the answer? Well, I don't know. I've just been thinking about it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you pick your birthday yeah. when you only have, you Was pick it, it on February the 28th or, or March tomorrow. the 1st? Yeah. How do you decide? What's the history of the leap year? Shall we do that tomorrow? Someone will know. 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And yes, people are texting through. David, for example, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Craig and Titahi Bay. Sergeant Pepper's, for goodness sake. Uh, Rosie and Governor's Bay, the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So there it, uh, there it is. Uh, you are on the panel. Good evening to you. Now to this, New Zealand has always been known as a beer loving nation but are we turning away from the booze stats nz data released today showed a 4.3 percent decline in alcohol available consumption last year compared to 2022 that is the biggest fall in 15 years in fact i think it was released yesterday that number takes into account beer wine and spirits Dylan Firth, the executive director of the brewers association of new zealand says economic pressures are responsible. But are there other factors? With us is Andrew Galloway, Executive Director of Alcohol Health Watch. Andrew, nice to have you here. Kia ora, Wallace. Thanks for having me. The biggest fall in 15 years. Are these stats surprising to you? Uh, it's not surprising. It is um, a statistic that's been uh, heading that way for a couple of years, and we've also seen a positive shift in the New Zealand Health Behaviour Survey and the rates of hazardous drinking. So it's it's a really positive um, indication that in some segments of the population there's, there's some positive change. What's it down to? Is it merely due to economic factors or are there are there societal factors at play? For example, many uh, younger people I know, including colleagues, they're just not into drinking in perhaps the way many were the same age back in the 80s, Andrew? Yeah, look, there's there's quite a few um, different factors, I think. I think on, on people who are drinking, who are choosing not to drink, there's quite a big sober curious movement, which is an international um, movement. It's happening in, in many of our like jurisdictions, and it's growing in popularity. We've got a fantastic um, range of support for people in New Zealand, the Living Sober website, uh, for example, um, Guy and Espinner uh, wrote a book called The Drinking Game, which mm. um, he tells his own journey of, of cutting out the booze. And I think um, many, many New Zealanders are choosing to. But I think with um, young people in particular, we're seeing more young people um, choosing not to drink. We don't want to um, gloss over the fact that there's still a problem for those um, who are drinking. They, they are typically still drinking hazardously, but um, it is a really positive trend that more people are choosing not to drink. So it is, in some ways, yes, there is some truth to um, uh, Dylan's comments around economic factors. I'm sure that is a factor, but um, certainly there is a growing uh, non-drinking movement as well, which is really positive. Catherine, we went, I mean, you're in wine country there, but uh, my uh, my wonderful <laughs> wife and I went out to dinner. Uh, this is uh, a wee while ago, uh, well, maybe sort of a few months ago, and uh, and um, as she was driving and it was a, it was a quite a nice place uh, out of the way and um, she decided to have a non zero alcohol white wine to see what it was like and she couldn't believe how good it was (laughs) 
And just I've been, for I've her, been made, told. Yeah, yeah, and for her, it made no difference because it tasted yep. fine. Yeah, yeah. You, Catherine, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because I think also you mentioned the guy in Aspen a book, but also um, a lot of Dan wrote a book about women drinking, right. and that's been a bit of because I've noticed, and obviously I'm a woman of a certain age, and, and so you know the algorithms send a lot of content my way. And um, a lot of women going through menopause can, you know, medicate with alcohol. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of more support going around reducing reducing that kind of sort of drinking in, at this time in life. And you feel like you're kind of part of a supportive community. So I'm not surprised that, you know, um, some demographics are cutting it out. And also my boys who are what, you know, in their 30s and their late 20s never drank the way really? I notice people drink in the 80s. No, never, never. Scott? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would consider myself probably even oh, five years ago, I would drink uh, and and binge drink. There were times where I would go way over and binge drink. Uh, and then even sort of a couple of years ago, I remember my kids saying to me, oh, Papa, you would have two insert beer name here while you were making dinner. Um, right. You know, but I haven't, I've had four drinks in the last year. Um, wow. And yeah. That's just been a change in mindset, change in people around me, and I don't find it fun anymore. Um, I can, I've, well, in fact, I've found that I can have more fun by not drinking. Um, hey, I'm just my question is probably really around if you if we cast our mind back to all of the debate around ads on TV and on sports shirts and things like that about beer and alcohol, is that has that played a factor in where we are as a culture today? The fact that we don't have as much of it now. Um, there, there hasn't really been any change in um, the rules around advertising, marketing, sponsorship and promotion. The, the um, government in 2014 commissioned a report and the report did actually recommend phasing it out, um, which is something we would still encourage um, looking at and, and doing. Um, so I don't think um, there's any less marketing. I think you probably are not in the target market that would see it. We're seeing a massive shift in terms of where people market and there's a there's a big um, push to online marketing, which um, young people... The young have, people. Um, yeah, access to social media at the age of 10 or 13 and, um, and be targeted right. discreetly. Yeah. One thing that has been interesting, just to looking at uh, the figures, one figure that has risen, uh, talking about trends in alcohol, uh, and that is the rise, the growth of 0% alcohol beers. It rose 8% in the last year. I mean, it's quite significant, Andrew. Do you expect that as that particular sector, I guess, guess gets more sophisticated, the tastes get more? I mean, here's one, for example, saying, um, I just, I've given up alcohol but still love a beer. I now drink non-alcohol beer. Love it. That's from Vicargill. Will that be a sector that uh, sees more growth? Yes, it is, and it has seen more growth. We've got non-alcoholic bottle stores, which you wouldn't have fathomed uh, 10 years ago at, least, um, uh, at a minimum. And um, uh, so we are seeing a huge range of really more appealing um, low-end non-alcoholic beers, which is a positive thing. We do need to um, manage um, the exposure from brand and, and uh, where they're placed and how they're sold, um, uh, particularly to young people, because we mm. do know there's some evidence around um, exposure of brand and, and harm. But right. um, it, overall, it's a, it's a really good friend. I, I went to a Christmas function last year and um, 
turned up and sat at a table with four four blokes who um, participate in this volunteer group that I'm in, and um, every single one of us uh, had a, a non-alcoholic um, beer, and that was just by um, by chance. And I think uh, the the rules around drink driving um, helped that trend, but also there's there's a health and well-being component to it. People are more conscious of the impact of alcohol. Yeah, Andrew, I just want to pick up one of your comments earlier. While while we're trending and down. Um, we're still not in a place where we should be celebrating the alcohol use in the country. Is that what I think I heard you say? Absolutely, 100%. I think there's, there remain significant inequities in consumption and alcohol resulting in serious and big harm. You know, $7.85 billion um, is the estimated cost of alcohol and uh, alcohol harm in New Zealand, and, and um, that's massive. Um, the, the tax taken is about $1.165 billion, so it's it's a big externality, big cost to New Zealand um, economy in terms of life and um, uh, and external costs. So, yeah, no, we're certainly not in the clear yet, but it is it is an indicator that we're heading in the right direction. Andrew, kia ora. Thanks for being on the programme. Appreciate it. Kia ora. It's uh, Andrew Galloway, Executive Director from Alcohol Health Watch. 6.48, I do want to touch on this. I said I'd do it uh, yesterday, but we ran out of time. But we've already had such a response uh, on this. The BBC journalist who Celtic manager Brendan Rogers called a good girl, sparking sexism complaints, said she does not believe he meant to offend. Rogers made the comment to reporter Jane Lewis during a post-match interview on Sunday and it was followed by calls from women's groups for him to apologise. Some were looking to be offended, he has since uh, said. Uh, Jane Lewis said, I don't believe there was any offence meant by Brendan Rogers, and for my part there was none taken. Uh, Emma says, good girl. Nowadays people tend to get offended at the opening of an envelope. In my opinion, if the recipient wasn't offended and didn't ask for an apology, then all is well. Uh, the, the one that counts here. Michelle says, regardless of whether he meant any offence or not, this is condescending. Jenny says, it's a pet hate. Totally condescending. We don't refer to men as boys. The only time this seems acceptable is when it's used by one of the group themselves. For example, a sports team captain saying, proud of the boys, proud of the girls. They did a great job out there today. Catherine, your thoughts on this? Well, as a rule, I would suggest that anybody does not call a grown woman a girl. Um, But I also, you know... Here we are speaking live on the radio. I haven't had a lot of practice at this, and sometimes a bad word or the wrong word is going to come out of my mouth. And so, you know, at the heat of the moment, somebody may say what they don't mean to say. And so I'm going to give him the benefit of the oh. doubt also. The, well, also because I think, you know, the journalist did say she didn't feel he, you know, he meant any uh, disrespect. And I think, you know, that's that's a good sign that he probably just said it as an you know just off the cuff really, um, but as a rule, don't call grown women girls. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I think my initial reaction was really, um, but then I, I think in listening to obviously what Catherine just said, I can I can understand it. Um, and to be fair, I think even when I was coaching my daughter's under ten girls football team. Yeah, I was mindful of what I was calling them and how I was talking to them as well too. So I think, um, God, just apologise, if, even if you didn't mean it. Just just say, look, it's uh, I won't do it again. I apologise for it. Other people might have taken offence. Be more mindful of it. Um, I do think we are getting to a place where we're a cancel culture on everything and anything and everything. But then 
be mindful, I guess. Is there something there, Captain, that we are, what did Emma say? People now get offended at the opening of an envelope. Oh, I don't know. I always hear that. And and I think calling people out for, I think, not being not being aware and not being thoughtful is, is okay, you know. It's okay because we do need to think about, you know, one of your earlier commentators, yeah, the, somebody who wrote in said language matters, and language does matter. Because if you said, if he'd said good boy to a grown man reporter, that would have a slightly mm. different vibe, mm. wouldn't it? You know, and the thing is, also, but it still would sound kind of condescending and patronising. So saying good girl is, you know, it's still the same thing. And I think that, you know, all right, you know, everybody doesn't have to get up in arms and tell them to, you know, never work in this, what is it, never work in this town again. But I do, yeah, I do feel it's worth mentioning. Yeah, and, and own it then if that, you know, if that's, mm. Um, if that's the case, and you know, you know, people are annoyed about it, then then own it. Um, you didn't you didn't intentionally set out to do it, but then people have taken it that way, so own it. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, thanks for your comments on that. Uh, it's seven away from seven pm on the panel on RNZ National. Finally, this really got caught my eye. Actually, research published in the British Medical Journal has highlighted the need for urgent measures to reduce dietary exposure to ultra-processed foods. The study found that high exposure to these foods can greatly increase the likelihood of 32 damaging health outcomes, including cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and mental health disorders. There have been studies in this area before, but this is considered the first comprehensive review that has provided a broad assessment of the evidence with us is Dr. Sally Mackay, co-chair of the Health Coalition Aotearoa Food Expert Group, senior lecturer at the School of Population Health at Auckland University. Dr. Mackay, welcome. Welcome, thank you. We did a little, little bit of this two days ago about processed food, particularly the amount of salt or sodium you know, in your snacks, and it was quite interesting. This is from, uh, from an Australian expert. So I was quite fascinated by this. Tell me first, as an explainer, what is the difference between processed foods and ultra-processed food? Yes, uh that's a really good question. So processed foods uh, usually have a few added ingredients, usually to preserve the food. So it might have a little bit of salt or oil. Uh, and you can still recognise that minimally processed food that it comes from. So I like to think that something like fresh, a fresh fish fillet is unprocessed. And then when you can it in spring water, then it's processed. So it's had a, a little bit of processing, but not as much as an ultra-processed food. Oh, interesting. What interests me and perhaps concerns me as, as a person who's quite busy and fairly on the go, I have an inkling that I do eat a fair bit of ultra-processed food. Can you give us an example or two? Well, the ultra-processed foods is actually a really big food category, and I think that is part of the problem in trying to understand ultra-processed foods. We did a study that found that 69% of packaged foods are ultra-processed, but these include things like your everyday breakfast cereals and some of our whole grain breads that we would actually recommend people to eat. So we've got to think of the ultra-processed foods that are more like junk food or not really like their original product. 
So we're talking like French fries rather than sort of like a potato. No, you're, you're salty yeah. snackers. You're, those little crackers that are really salted and flavoured. The Moorish ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're very tasty. Potato chips. The ones that are far yeah. too easily accessible and they taste good, but they're not good for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, and that, that is the thing about ultra-processed foods. They've got the salt and the sugar content so that they're really uh, hyper-palatable, so that they are really Moorish, and then you eat too many of them. Yeah, Catherine. Well, I was reading something about ultra-processed foods which said that they should be classified as addictive because some of those, you know, the more the junk food types, what they put in them is actually, you know, trains your body to crave them. Is that correct? Some researchers are suggesting that, but I think, again, because there's so many different ultra-processed foods, that some mm-hmm. of those ones, particularly higher in fibre, um, there's only so much of you can, that you can eat of them. But the more uh, snacky foods that do have a lot of salt and sugar, they can be addictive, yes. Hey, Dr. McCoy, and one of our, I guess one of our problems is they are so accessible, right? And unfortunately, a lot of these things are cheaper than real foods. So how do we change and the I, mindset? Or how, do we, how yeah. do we make a difference? And I think you also mentioned before about when you're in a hurry that these ultra-processed foods are really easy to cook. And That's if me. you don't have time to prepare from, you know, from scratch, that does make it difficult. Interesting. So when I go home and something on the bus, and instead of reaching for my highly salted, flavoured uh, little crackers, would you suggest me to prepare a little palette of Carrots, hummus, and dates, <laughs> and a few cashews. Well, um, I mean, nuts are really convenient as well and very um, easy to eat. So, yeah, nuts would be a good option. Well, I eat a lot of those. That's good news there. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, just, yeah. fi- just finally, though, I mean, there is a sort of a, a, a concerning element to this, eh, that, that these foods can increase the likelihood of 32 damaging health outcomes. Yes, I was surprised by the breadth of the health outcomes. They weren't just our usual diabetes, cancer, heart disease. It included some respiratory diseases like asthma and mental health as well. And there is a concern that some of the additives and preservatives that are added to these foods might have uh, consequences on you know, our gut bacteria that we don't know about yet. And so that might be some of the reasons that they could be more uh, risky. Yeah, I've made a real concerted effort with my kids in particular. Have you? Yeah. Mm. Uh, and just, you know, they, they they have snacks and things like that. Mm. But, you know, in the lunch boxes now, it's always like watermelon or grapes or cut up cucumber. Good and for you. Every night yeah. it's veggies and those sorts of things. But if I turn my dial back a few years, you know, it might have been the pasta packet, you know, that mm. came out because it yeah. was easy and quick. Yeah, yeah, we had to make a change because my husband um, got late onset type 1 diabetes and I had to learn to read, you know, the ingredients list because we had to keep the sugar and, and carbohydrates under a certain level. And when you start yeah. reading ingredients list and you look at all the things that are in there, you go, oh, crikey, oh, I didn't realise. Dr. Mackay, kia ora. thank you very much for your time. Really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, we have a bit of response on that. That's Dr. Mackay, co-chair of the Health Coalition Aotearoa Food Expert Group. Someone says, does that mean Pringles as well? Probably does, doesn't it? Probably does. Yeah, man. And can I clarify? Yeah. I did know it was Sergeant Peppers, not Dr. Peppers. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it was a slip we of the tongue. We both said that. We just uh, we've just made every feature stand out. Absolutely. Oh, good to have you both on for a Thursday. That's uh, Catherine Robertson, uh, Scott Campbell. Kia ora to you both. I'm Wallace Chapman. Stick around. I'm with you till eight pm this evening. The detail is up after the news. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.